move into, one, the closing portion of Job. I'm sure all of us may breathe a collective sigh of relief, saying, finally, he's going to be done with his book. We've walked all the way through. Uh, But we come to the, the climax of it, right, where God speaks. And I title this, Answered by God, though God's answer is done with questions and commands. I I wrote kind of down here, picture in your mind, though, as we get to this point, uh, people speculating on the upcoming actions of a powerful CEO. Some predictions people make on what this person will do can be wild and don't even line up with who that person is. We've seen that with the friends. Yet some people's perspectives begin to shed some light on what may unfold. These are the people who know the CEO well, and when they speak of what is coming up, Everyone understands they're on the same page as the boss, but nothing compares to the CEO standing up and speaking directly to the company, telling everyone exactly what the plans are and what the actions are going to be. See, when the boss speaks, when the head person talks, all doubt and speculation is erased because the definitive answer has been given. Well, as we dive into 38 through 42 in Job, we are getting the definitive answer. And as we'll see in these next chapters, in a far more important way than any CEO could speak, God now speaks. And when he is done, Job launches no more questions against God's character. He expresses no more doubt in who God is and how God works. God doesn't necessarily answer Job's questions at the level that Job asked them. Actually, he answers Job's questions at a far deeper level than Job asked them, at a far higher level, at a more inclusive level, actually. But as one writer notes, not once does God minimize the reality of Job's suffering. So if you look at God and say, wow, he's talking over Job and just ignoring the details, he's not. He never minimizes it. Instead, as Robert Fial notes, God points out that creation does not center around human beings. Uh, one critical verse, Job 38, 26, is going to talk about how God waters a land where no man lives. In other words, showing to Job, one, he doesn't have control, but two, you're not the center of everything. God, in his answer, directs Job to look beyond himself and instead see the magnitude and majesty of of God. We're going to be pushed in the same direction. So we're going to be overwhelmed. And I, I mentioned this last week as you read all the questions that God asks. It's, it's a building and building and building. But God, through these rhetorical questions, is going to reveal to Job and to us his sheer greatness and vastness. He's going to show Job that he has care and providence for his creation. And there's going to be a joy that God had and has in his creation. He takes Job on this first speech through a journey that makes Job think about the source of the universe, helps Job understand that it is upon God that the earth depends and not Job, and shares insight from specific animals which highlight something. It highlights God's direct involvement in components of this life. And I want to mention this. I'll say it again. When God highlights the wildness of nature, you're to correlate and realize if God is that involved in wild beings, then he most certainly is equally or more involved in the lives of his creation, us, that bear his image. Yet God's speech isn't supposed to be just a shock and awe session. God is not 
just trying to blow Job away, which is one of the things Job accused him of. Instead, throughout his questioning, he is confronting Job's accusations and making clear how off base they were, how wrong they were. And that all begins with that direct address we find in 38, 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel? By words without knowledge. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. And seemingly, and if you remember, Elihu describes the closing light coming and he describes a storm coming out of the north. And we mentioned how Elihu's speech will kind of work right into God's talking directly. And so you see God coming in a storm like the one that Elihu described, the Lord, and the word there is Yahweh, is coming and he does not approach Job defending himself. Instead, he comes confronting Job's insight. He comes to show Job how he, Job, has spoken words. And here's what's critical, how Job has questioned God with words that are not based on truth or reality. Now, this is not saying, this is not God saying, Job, you've not said anything right about me. Actually, when we get to chapter 42, God's going to say that Job spoke correctly about him. And in comparison to the friends, he says, he said the right things, you've said the wrong things. So Job has described God oftentimes correctly. However, Job has fallen into what Elihu has been emphasizing for three messages for six or seven chapters, that Job has been sinful in how he's responded to his suffering. And that's what God is confronting now, how Job has questioned God's rule and judgment over earth. And there's something immensely valuable to be learned here in God's direct address. And it's worth a moment of reflection and thought. You can always ask God questions, but we do not stand in the position where we can question God. And God makes that crystal clear. You can always ask God. You can always go to God. You can always petition God, but you cannot question God. You actually don't have that right. That's one of the biggest struggles that you see in the world around us is that they will position themselves in the authority to question God. And God makes clear in Job, no, you do not. And the reason we don't question God is not because he can't handle being questioned. He's not a petty dictator. It's because he is so far above us and beyond us, so perfect and holy, that questioning him involves demeaning who he is and spurning his glory. If you're perfect, and that's who you are, then to say to God you might have made a small mistake is to negate his perfection. In other words, when you question God, you tell God he's not God. And as humans, we need to understand that. You could question my justice. I can question your justice because there's a time you've been unjust. And so you might say, well, it's not fair in this circumstance. And, and you may be right, but it's not undermining who you are as an individual. But God is undermined by a question because it defines who he is. We spurn his glory with that. We live in an arrogant world that thinks they can question everything, especially God. We engage in that arrogance. We are part of that oftentimes. Well, this world is in for a shock when they walk into eternity. And by, keep this in mind, God is being gracious when he confronts our arrogance here on this planet, here in this life. See, no one's going to get to heaven and demand answers from God. 
No, they'll recognize, at least by then, that God is the one who asked the questions. And by the way, in eternity, those questions at that point, you will be unable to answer or repent of them. So recognize God's grace as he confronts Job here. Here on earth, he speaks to Job, giving him the opportunity to repent and to follow what God wants. So let's dress for action as it says there, and see and hear what God has to say regarding, first, the structure of his world. This is a structure that God, that Job has brought into question. So God asks this, he says, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations therefore fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God starts off, you question my structure, you question my judgment, then where were you when I measured this world? Not that God had to measure it. He is giving us something we can grapple with. Job has questioned the function of this life. He's pontificated about the lack of precision from God. Hey, God, I'm blameless. I'm suffering. You've messed up. You've measured wrong. The board is too long or too short. You didn't build this right. And God says, were you holding the tape measure when I made this world? Were you there? Do you dare to question if what God created was good? Go to Genesis. What does God say about his creation at the end? Genesis 1. And it was good. And God's telling Job, don't you dare tell me it's not precise, that it's not accurate, that it's not right? Verse 7 asks, did you see the morning stars, which is referencing again the sons of God, the angels shouting for joy over what God had done? God is telling Job that he created everything properly and purposefully. It had no mistakes, and it remains a source of joy. Kind of transitioning to the next portion of what God asks, because what do we say? What about evil? What can be said about reality? That's nice, God, that you're precise. What about my life? What about my situation? Well, grabbing an analogy from the the religion of the day, the folklore of that time, the writer looks now to the sea, which if you look at the sea in Old Testament literature, oftentimes the sea depicts, as Hartley notes, the forces of chaos hostile to life. It depicts evil and death and destruction. What has God done with that? And we're going to find that he's confined it. More importantly, that evil has never been beyond his control or authority. That's a key point. Job says to God, you've made mistakes. Job says to God, you're not precise. Job says to God, evil is overtaking you. And God says to Job, evil's never been outside of its limits. I have confined it since the beginning. On top of that, it has no authority. Satan is not a force that ever comes close to who God is. Though he is a force of great power that we must not belittle, he is not a force that God needs to reckon with. Satan never rises to the playing field of God. So God continues. Who shut up the sea with doors? And obviously we understand the sea containment of the sea, but think of the sea in the context of chaos, death, destruction, evil. Who has contained evil? And using the illustration of the ocean, when it break forth, if it's issued out of the womb, in other words, since its inception, who has confined it? 
When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Here too shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. And that idea tells you what the sea is depicting. God asks who Job thinks was the one who limits evil. Job is looking at his suffering and sees wrong as uncontained, increasing in influence and power, taking away from God, making God, in essence, not the all-powerful one. And God responds by saying he wasn't, dis- he wasn't surprised by disorder. He wasn't surprised by chaos. He wasn't d- surprised by our fall. He wasn't surprised by the evil. He wasn't surprised by death. Instead, God instructs Job and us that he is the one from the inception of evil that set the limitations of it. Now, he's not the author of evil, but he's never been surprised by it. He tells Job, you're thinking evil is blowing out of proportion, and I'm telling you that it's always been limited. Since it was born, I have put it in its box. It cannot go further than what I've allowed it And the other component is evil can never legitimately threaten God. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read through Revelation. And hopefully you have. And if you haven't, then I want to convict you that you should be reading through the whole Bible and be reading in Revelation. But if you read through Revelation, one, it's very scary, right? If you see this symbolism that's there and the utter destruction and all that stuff, there's a component of that 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 strikes fear in our hearts Uh, But one of the things I want you to read, if you're ever reading through it again, I want you to notice that when God decides to take action, how difficult is it for God to annihilate the worst that evil can do? And what you'll find is that we're God's army, but we don't do anything. We ride the pretty horses down from there, and then God with the breath annihilates everything. And, And I want us to remember this. God is with ease destroying evil when it's time. God is not threatened by evil. Evil will never overcome God. It's not even a legitimate contender in that. And again, Revelation will tell you that story as it closes out. Uh, God continues now showing beyond doubt that he does command all, that he will ultimately destroy Evil. So evil is contained. It's limited. It's not exceeding its bounds. That's what he's telling Job. And then he goes on in 12 to 15 to tell you, I'm going to get rid of evil. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know its place? He's saying to Job, have you caused the morning sun to rise and fall uh, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? Now he's saying, oh, you think you can deal with all the wickedness? It is turned as clay to the seal and they stand as a garment. And that just means you're in the dark, right? And you're in the dusk and you see everything as two-dimensional. And as the sun comes up, then you see the mountains and the trees and the texture of everything. It, it comes to light. So he's, he's tying in again to a natural phenomenon, the sun rising, setting. And then he goes, and from the wicked, their light is withholden and the high arm shall be broken. If you're underlining it, 15, the last of it is saying, I will ultimately destroy evil. God is saying that he's the general that commands the sun to rise. He's the one that will shake out the evil completely. The imagery shows the sun rising. Again, the wicked love darkness. So when the sun rises, it's it's a depiction that God says judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And in essence, God is saying every time the sun rises, it tells the wicked, your day is coming. It is a promise to us 
that God will deal with it. And then the ultimate defeat, like I mentioned, high arms shall be broken. And how can we know that God can accomplish this crushing defeat? Not that God needs to prove himself. Well, God says through more questions, I know the farthest reaches of this world. I know the farthest reaches even of death. And he goes on in 16 through 18. Hast thou entered in the springs of the sea? And that means, have you gone to the depths of the sea? And, and in their mind, the sea was born from um, springs that would blow forth. And so dealing with their mindset, God is saying, have you gone to the start of it all? Or hast thou walked in the search of the depth? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breath of the earth? Declare if thou knowest it all. And what he's saying to Job is nothing is hidden from me. I've walked the deep recesses. I command, God says, the gates of death. And he's conquered and encompasses all the earth. We are seeing through these questions God's vast control and power. Where can you hide from God? And God just said, nowhere. That, Job, you don't understand death. You don't understand the concept. And that's okay, because God does. He's painting his his omnipresence in front of Job. And he's showing him all power and all presence and all knowledge because he's showing Job his ability. And it's painted in a picture of nature before his eyes. He continues sharing uh, the depths of his control, pointing to the horizon now. Where is the way where the light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? That thou shouldest take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldest know the path to the house thereof. Knowest thou it because thou wast then born, or because the number of thy days is great? And there's a little bit of good godly sarcasm. Just in case you're wondering if being sarcastic is biblical, there you go. God weaves it right in there. Because you're so old and so mighty, you were there when that was all created. That's what God is is saying. And he's proving his point again. God asked Job if he himself commands the light or controls it. Do you contain the darkness, he says to Job? Now remember, darkness and light. Darkness is wickedness. Light is goodness, right? And so he says, do you contain evil? You're claiming that I don't, and I've just told you I do, and I'm going to annihilate evil, and I've been and I am everywhere, I encompass everything. Then he says, just yet again to make his point, do you do that? Were you around when it all started, Job? Are you that great? And then God continues, hast thou entered in the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? By what way is the light parted, lightning he's talking about, which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? And then God again points Job to the skies and he says, snow and hail, both of which can be quite destructive or hampering, God has at his disposal. He points to lightning and its power. And by the way, I always knew lightning was powerful, but this past week, uh, lightning struck my yard, which was neat to see. And now I deal with the frustration thereof. The gate we have, this motor is burned up. We have no internet because that took care of that as well. And I was struck by the awesome power of lightning. I sat there in my barn and I thought I was having an adrenaline rush or maybe an early onset of a heart attack or something. There I'm sitting, I'm like, maybe sure I can call 911 right now. But the fact is it, it changed and affected. And I started thinking as I'm reading in Job and it talks about lightning and I'm thinking God controls that power. That's nothing to how powerful he is. And then on top of that, he mentions the east wind. He, he controls the scorching winds that come through. 
Job and we have no control over those things at all. I remember Heather actually called me, don't come walk from the barn to the house. There's a lightning storm obviously right in our yard. I don't stop the lightning, right? I don't tell it not to strike here or there. I don't control when the rain falls. I can't move it around and God says, but I do. I have complete control of them and we have zero control. We can't even predict the weather. God says, I move it wherever I want to for my purpose. Here's the sad reality as we look at the structure of God's world. We think we know better than God. Like King Alfonso X, he's king of Spain. I'm sure you picked that up by his name, 13th century. We think that God could have used some pointers from us. This man is noted as saying this, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. Thinking of arrogance. Job has made some like sounding claims though. And so do we. When we question how God works, when we think to ourselves, I could have helped God do this just a little better. I don't think I could write the whole program, God, but I could definitely have tweaked it and been very useful to you. Here's the reality. We don't have any insight that would help the creator better govern this world or better structure this world. And that's one of the main points that Job has to see is God is saying to him, you cannot add to what God has done. And to do so is to challenge God's authority and his power. And so in this first portion of his speech, God makes clear that What he created was good. He was not surprised by evil. Instead, he sets its limits. And ultimately, he has arranged for its destruction. He is in control of the farthest reaches, even death. And he governs in every corner and over every phenomenon. The question asked of Job and us is, do we see and acknowledge it? See, that's where God is driving Job. Do you understand that you can't improve on God? That he's not made a mistake? And then I put here, does our behavior and attitude change because of it? But God has not finished even with this first round. He continues now by looking at the maintenance of the world. It's the end of 38 all the way through 39. And he looks again at weather and how the earth is watered. Who hath divided a water course for the overflowing of waters? Who directs waters, what he's saying? Or a way for the lightning of thunder to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man. In other words... Who in the world would make something grow where humanity is not? Well, for sure, humanity can't because they don't even know it exists. But God does, and he waters it to satisfy the desolate and waste ground and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. God says, who do you think moves water and sends the lightning? He's the one that sends rain to uninhabited regions that no human would ever think of. Now, we live in a day and age where we've discovered everything, right? We've seen the whole world. And so right away we read that, we say, I would have thought of it because I would want the jungle to be watered. You don't know a jungle exists. Would you water a jungle you don't know exists? That's what God's asking. He can, but you can't. It reminds us again that we're not the center of this universe. God is the one that causes things to grow, that makes the system work. It is not us, no matter how much we think 
It's within our power to alter the seasons and the weather. We cannot because God works this system. He tells us that in the New Testament, in Hebrews and in Colossians as well. God continues with a look at water and its different forms. He's wanting Job to think. Hath the rain a father, or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Out of whose womb come the ice, or came the ice, and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? The waters are hid as with the stone. In other words, are frozen, and the, the face of the deep is frozen. He says to Job, are you the father of rain and all the various forms of water? No, of course not. They're the creation of an all-wise heavenly father who sends them. As Ash notes, he is the sovereign originator of them all. He's trying to look at life-giving water. And if you don't think water's life-giving, remove water and realize how difficult or impossible life would be. And then God moves to the stars. These are things that Job himself referenced in chapter 9. Canst thou bind the sweet influence of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion therefore in the earth. Does Job control, and we're starting with the physical side, the stars? And then remember, the stars are oftentimes put in place to picture heavenly beings. And so you have to carry the illustration forward. God is asking Job, do you control the heavenly beings? Do you tell the angels what to do? Do you handle the discussion that takes place in heaven? And again, the answer is no, no, no. Who does? Well, Job 1 told us who does. As Satan comes in and has to get God's permission to do anything, who handles the discussion? Who asked Satan the question about Job? It was God who did. And so he says to Job, do you control heavenly decisions and discussions? No, you absolutely do not. But I do. God does. And then back to the skies again and weather. Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds that abundance of waters may cover thee? Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto them, here we are? Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts or who hath given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds in wisdom or who can say to the bottles of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clouds cleave fast together? And again, he's asking Job, can you control the rain and send it where it needs to be? Is he in control of the whole weather cycle of lightning and timing? Does Job manage the life-giving waters from heaven? Absolutely not. That's not within his power or ours. But again, it is in God's power and control. And what is God pushing Job to see? That God is far beyond Job. Far more powerful. And to remind him that all these things that are completely out of his reach are completely maintained by God. The conversation now shifts to look at animals in nature. It's still pointing to God's maintenance and governing of this world, and it shows very specifically his care and provision. It also highlights some of the struggles we see in a fallen world. Why is there suffering? Why is there struggling? Well, we know we live in a sin-stricken world, but God begins with hungry predators that need to eat the prey. Their survival ties to the loss or suffering of the prey. But does Job have anything to do with orchestrating that intricate detail? Can he process the connection, the care and grace and love needed to make this all possible? Can you process the weight of this decision? Who lives, the lion or the gazelle? Somebody has to die. 
And so you're going to see him deal with sticky issue out the gate with the point of saying, could you make this call? Could you make this decision? Could you handle the weight of this? Who eats and who dies? Wilt thou hunt the prey for the lion or fill the appetite of the young lions when they couch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait? Who provided for the raven his food? When his young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of meat. In other words, the raven needs something dead that it can eat from. The young lions need the lionesses to hunt and to take down the prey. Does God orchestrate what takes place in the wild? Does he decide if the lion lives or will it be the gazelle that's running away? God does not skirt the tough question, but instead uses them to help Job understand the magnitude of what God does. Because we are not to be confronted with, I like to decide who lives and dies. Instead, we're to be confronted with the reality that we can't make that call, that we're not capable of those decisions. But God always decides what is right and best. It also shows a God involved in working even through the toughest of situations. What did Job say about God? That he is silent, that he is absent. And Elihu said to him, no, God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. And what is God showing through this struggle of life and death in nature and in the wild? I'm involved in the toughest of circumstances. Now he moves on from the end of the life cycle to looking at the beginning. He says, knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do calf? Canst thou number the months that they fulfill? Or knowest thou the time when they bring forth? They bow themselves, they bring forth their young ones, they cast out their sorrows. The young ones are in good liking, they grow up with the corn, they go forth and return not unto them. And, and here's the idea that's presented. And again, we say, oh, we got a zoo, we can count the months. And so we have a tendency to fall back and not understand the context. Job has no idea when the wild animals bear their young. He has no idea how to count the months of gestation. He doesn't know how these undomesticated animals bear their young. And then here's a big question. Does Job even care how they bear their young? That's the other part of the question. But God is saying, I care. I'm involved in it. I know and I care, he says. Job has wondered about God's timing. When are you going to act, God? He's cried. Well, God says, I'm the one who knows and controls time. I'm the one that orchestrates when these animals give birth and how long they need to be in the womb and, and how it's going to unfold. That's all in my hands. I am the one who cares. So as we look to God and say, when, God, when are you going to act? And God says, I control all of time. I handle this. I make this call and no one better can make it. But see, we're sitting in our situation. We say, yeah, but I'd like to tweak your plan, God. Because I add to what you do. And we've got to remember the lesson. The structure is there. We don't add to what God does. Because his timing is perfect and his plan and structure is perfect. He goes on. Who has sent out the wild donkey free? Or who hath loosed the bands of the wild donkey? Whose house I have made the wilderness and the barren land and its dwelling. He scorneth the multitude of the city. Neither regardeth he the crying of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture. And he searches after every green thing. And here is... The wild donkey who's free. They have domesticated donkeys and you have wild donkeys. And he's saying, who gave the donkey, the wild donkey, its freedom? Who did that? God did. If Job looks at yet another wild beast, one he sees doing whatever it wants, God is showing that its freedom was both given by God and is controlled by God. 
It doesn't lie outside God's authority. So you look at this wild animal. You want domesticated donkeys to pull your stuff and listen to the cry of man. And it laughs at that. Who gave it its freedom and who controls its freedom? God does, though it's outside of Job's control. Now God turns to the wild ox, which here is listed as unicorn, that depicts a power Job cannot harness. Will the unicorn, and when you see that wild ox, be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Is it going to come into the barn and into the stall? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Will you hook up a wild ox and plow with it? Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great? In other words, it's a powerful beast. You'd love to harness it. Talk about putting more horses under the hood. This is a great way to be a super farmer. Go ahead and tie these up. Are you going to trust him to do what you want? Goes on, or wilt thou leave thy labor to him? Will you trust him to, to, to accomplish this for you? Wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather into thy barn? Are you going to trust your farming to the wild ox? He says to Job, take a look, Job, at this powerful and dangerous animal. By the way, the ancient world knew them to be dangerous. David in Psalm 22 likens being rescued from the horns of the wild ox with being saved from the mouth of the lion. You want to know how fierce the wild ox is? And we kind of think, oh, dumb ox, we'll get it. God is showing and they understood that this wild ox would gore you in a second, just like a lion would eat you. So David writes, God, protect me from that dangerous animal and also the dangerous cat that can attack me. They're on the same level, just so you get an idea. But it's a powerful animal. And Job is confronted now with the wildness off the farm that he has no control over. He can't tap this beast and make it respond. He can't make it plow. He wisely must watch out for it. He is not the boss of nature. But God is, and beyond that, God cares for them all. Now he goes, and this is an interesting analogy. We get to the ostrich, which is a dumb bird, to, to put it lightly. I'll say that. Um, the ostrich, he says here, gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks or ostrich, the same word there, or wings and feathers unto the ostrich, which leaveth her eggs in the earth and warmeth them in the dust and forgetteth that the foot may crush them or that the wild beast may break them. She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear. In other words, the ostrich lays an egg and leaves it there to be trampled down. When she sees her young, she acts like they're not related at all. And you think it's all a waste of time for her to have an egg because it's, there's no way she's going to survive through multiple generations. It's just a very unintelligent animal. Because God hath deprived her of wisdom. This is the thing. Explain to me, Job, this dumb bird. Explain its purpose and how it functions and why it's there. Neither hath he imparted to her understanding what time she lifted up herself on high, she scorned at the horse and his rider. And this is the reality. Here is an unintelligent bird. It lays its eggs and doesn't protect them, cares not at all for her young, and is pictured as brainless by design. I'd hate to say it's a blonde girl, but I don't want to do that. It's just... <laughs> Either way, I'm in trouble. I recognize that. Because I'm just thinking, well, I have a daughter who's blonde, two of them. So I was blonde as well. So I'm in the same category. Um, Here's the interesting thing. God says, I made sure she has and he, ostrich, has no intelligence. By our thinking, that bird is extinct. But it's not. It survives. How? God. And then on top of that, 
It's so fast that it laughs at the horse and rider. I've made a very fast, dumb bird, God says. Why? You don't know. For his glory and his design, he's, 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 because Job can't fathom. How, How do you wrap your mind around the purpose there? But they're made with a purpose that maybe we can't even grasp, that there is components of creation. And we say, huh? Because the wonder of God's creation compared to our finite mind. And it's to drive us to worship God. What did Alfonso say? Ah, would have made a smarter bird. God says, made it dumb on purpose. And then he moves on to the war horse, which, by the way, is the pride of any army. One commentator says, this is the nuclear weapon of that day. This is the tanks. This is the grenade launchers. This is the weapons of war you need to overcome the enemy. This is it. This is $40 billion sent to Ukraine. That's what it is. I want you to recognize that this is what they needed to battle. Hast thou given that horse the strength, given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. In other words, when it breathes out, it it, it, it Fuses fear into people. He paweth in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goeth on to meet the armed men. He mocketh at fear and is not affrighted. Neither turneth he back from the sword. In other words, this horse doesn't run away from battle. It runs to battle. The quiver rattleth against him. The glittering spear and the shield. He swalloweth the ground with fierceness and rage. It speaks to how fast it charges in. Neither believeth he that it is the sound of the trumpet. He saith among the trumpets, ha ha. And he smelt the battle afar off, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. And I put here, this is no show pony. This is not an animal you bring into the show ring. And it's not depicting pretty. It's predicting powerful. It's a powerful beast raised a little crazy, so it charges unbothered into battle. It's not distracted. Most horses, and I'm not a horseman by any stretch of the imagination. I can just get close to them. That's it. But what I understand is that if you're making a lot of noise on him, you're going to be messing with the horse. It's not what you do. But this horse is not bothered by lights and glittering and noise and trumpets. All of that doesn't mess with it. It's designed to fight. Instead, it smells a good fight and is drawn to it. It charges in, designed for death and destruction. And God says to Job, are you the one that made this animal this way? Did you create it with this power and fearlessness? And the answers are resounding no. God even asked him, can you make this powerful beast fearful like a grasshopper? And the answers are resounding no. Yet this horse has a master, one in charge of its activities. And Job, who cannot overcome the mighty war weapon, has to trust the only one who can. To Job, an army full of these horses with someone on it is a daunting image. It is an invasion. He's somewhat experienced this. Possibly some of the Chaldeans and Sabians would have attacked his flocks with this type of warfare. This is what they were afraid of. And God says, you don't control it. You can't change it, but I can trust in me. And then God returns now to a look at the predator birds and the balance of nature in the wild. Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? Doth the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? She dwelleth and abideth on the rock upon the crag of the rock and the strong place. From thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off, just to see that God isn't just painting a pretty picture. Her young ones also suck up blood 
and where the slain are, there is she. And it says here to Job again, do you direct the birds? Do you control their hunting and success? Do you make it possible for the eagle to spot its prey, to swoop down and then feed it to its young? And God says, bring it up to the nests where death is, that they eat and consume that animal that just lost its life. Do you control those decisions? Do you make this function? Do you orchestrate nature? No, you don't. Nor could you. We can't handle that responsibility. I want you to think about it a little bit because God on purposely is carrying Job to the scary side of nature. None of us go to the zoo and watch a lion hunt the gazelles that are in the other cage. Maybe the zoo would be at more people if that happened. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds exciting. Um, but we, we don't watch that. When we paint nature, we paint it with such pristine colors and safe colors. And God says, look at nature for real. As there's loss and there's gain, there's survival and there's suffering. And it's not to say, deal with it, Job. It's to tell Job that he can't decide that. That's not in his wheelhouse and it's not in ours. And so as he walks through, one, he is confronted with his inability, but then he's supposed to be confronted with God's ability. That you can't decide and handle this suffering and not survival or not. You can't deal with this, but you worship the one who can and more importantly, does. God is making clear to Job that he governs the world wisely and perfectly. So he gave Job a picture of the magnitude of that responsibility, which helps Job and us see that he is sovereign and we're not. But in God's illustrations, we also see his intimate care. He's not a distant God. He's not the God of the proverbial ant farm who's just tapping the glass periodically to see how we're going to scurry about, caring not at all where we dig our tunnels or what, just saying, need experiment. Because we're not an experiment to God. Instead, he's involved in every component of life, and that's what he's showing through the wild nature. You don't control this, Job, but I want you to realize that I'm involved in every detail of their life. And if God is so concerned with nature, we can be sure he's concerned and involved with us. So God both reprimands Job with a look at world governance, and then also in the same illustration manifests to Job how loving and caring and involved he is in Job's life and in my life and in your life. God then ends his first speech by directly readjusting Job. And now he says, you're going to answer. Remember Elihu asked Job for an answer and Job kept silent, which is okay in that scenario. Well, God, you don't have the luxury to not answer God when he says to give you an answer. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, shall he that contended with the Almighty instruct? And the hymn is added for our clarity. You're going to instruct the Almighty? You think you're going to tell me something? And then he says, he that reproveth God, let him answer it. He says to Job, you question me, answer it. You want an audience? You want to talk? Well, then talk, God says. Well, Job doesn't have the luxury not to speak. So he answers the Lord and said, behold, I am vile. I am of a small account. I am of a no account. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. 
Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. He answers correctly. You're going to see his answer grow. By the end of the second speech, he's in repent. Here he's telling God, you're right. I've spoken ignorantly, and I'm going to cover my mouth to prevent that from happening again. As Derek Kidner wrote, God's speech cuts us down to size, treating us not as philosophers, because that's what we think we are, intelligent, moving, he says, but instead as children, limited in mind, puny in body, whose first and fundamental grasp of truth must be to know the difference between our place and God's and to accept it. You see, God just told Job, you're not God. And you don't add to God and you couldn't do God's role. And it says to us, you're not God. You don't add to God and you can't do God's role. But on top of that, he says, but I can do my role and I can do it well and I can handle it. And actually the response is not just not speaking, but it's supposed to be peace because there's things happening that we don't have a grip on, but God does. And I think of a little child and they come and something loud clangs in the night and it's a monster or whatever it may be. Where do they find comfort? With the parent, with you. Why is that? Have you resolved the issue of the monster? No, but they know you have control of it. And so their peace comes from trusting you, not from them understanding the lack of the monster, because you've tried that, right? When they come to your bed and you say, go back to bed, there's no monster. And they're like, yeah, but there's still a monster. But when they come to you and recognize that you've got a grip of it, there's peace for them. And that's what Job is being driven to. You can't handle this. But God says, I have. And you trust in me and have peace in me. Job is beginning to grasp who God is and trust how God works. Job is beginning to understand how it is possible for God to use all things for his glory, even the evil we feel is impossible to explain. He's starting to see that God is above all and over all and nothing compares with him. Job is beginning to grasp what Paul writes in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Job is starting to realize that God orchestrates everything and that God is just and that God is good and that he can rest in God's goodness and in God's control, knowing that he could never handle the responsibility, could never handle that decision. You see, Job is beginning to recognize that God is good and right, no matter what darkness he may personally be walking through. Job is moving. He's not there. He's moving towards that realization. He may not understand it all, but he knows he can trust God through it all. And I put here, are we beginning to do the same? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come to you, to, to study your word, to hear you speak. Uh, to Job, you speak to us. And you speak and answer our questions at a higher level than we could ever imagine. And you actually drive us not just to grin and bear it and not just to uh, accept a dictatorial kind of proclamation, but instead you invite us uh, to the higher level of trusting you and then resting in you, not 
built up in turmoil over our need to control the situation, but instead realizing peacefully that you are in control, that you don't need our help, that we add nothing to that equation, and so we can rest in the arms of our Heavenly Father. All of your questions drive Job and drive us to trust you. We ask this morning as we maybe walk out of here and enter life that has turmoil in it, that is weighed down with loss and suffering and and affliction, that we can try to remember the message that you've given Job and, and as it's your word to all of us, to recognize your control, to recognize your responsibility and your decisions, that they're perfect and wise. We don't need to give you advice, but instead we can just rest peacefully in your control and in your management and governance of this world. In your precious and holy name, amen.